Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And welcome back, or welcome to the second part of my chat with the fantastic Toby Stevens. Um, no need for me to talk anymore. Tell us about that Coriolanus, because it was a famous thing at the time. You were 24, 25. No one had ever played that part so young mm. before. I'm very curious. I wanted to ask you about this and about your Hamlet, you know, that you did for Michael Boyd, because... Like it or not, at these great temples of culture, like the RSC or the National, you know, there comes it comes with all this historical baggage, mm. right? You know, Olivier famously played Coriolanus yeah. and had this extraordinary death scene where he fell and was caught by his Carpe feet. Like, and exactly, like the imitation of the death of Mussolini. Yeah. Famous, famous images. How do you remember going about it in your mid-twenties? playing a part like that and trying to make it your own, trying to get away from the associations that have come before you and trying to have any relaxation in it? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, it was at the time, I think it was this insane moment when I remember when they asked me to go and audition for it. And I, I was sort of like, well, I'm a bit young for Talos or Phidias. I mean, I don't, I don't know, I, you know. And they went, no, no, they want to see you for Coriolanus. And I, I just thought this is absurd. You know, but then at the same time, you go, well, I'll give it a go. And um, I had this incredibly arduous and long audition with David Thacker, who got me to do these speeches in about a hundred different ways. Wow. And I, I remember leaving going, I just didn't give him what, I, what he wanted. And then getting this phone call saying, they've asked you to do it. It's so true that the the only really great moment about this job is when somebody asks you to do something. <laughs> because, you know, it's that moment in which you go, oh, my God, I've got it and I've got all these possibilities. And it's before... <laughs> The rush of self-doubt suddenly, suddenly just hammers you down. Like the, the self-doubt and the, the kind of like, oh my God, you know. Yeah. So it's the only And point. it is the true thing of like, I, I, my mum tells the story of, I rang up my mum and I said, mum, I've got Coriolanus. And she went, oh my God, have they got cream that you can use for that? <laughs> It does sound like a fungal infection. <laughs> now that'll clear up. Oh, I, and and then I was I it was just sheer terror, and it was like, okay, I need to learn. Uh, and I did. I think that's one of the hardest 
I, the hardest I've ever worked. I had to work because it was just like, you know, I can't, I can't fuck this. I can't be just, this can't be a disaster, which was what I was sort of going up. Fuck, this is just, I, this could be one of the biggest catastrophes the RSC has ever had. And so I did a huge amount of work. It was incredible how much I learned and how very quickly I learned it. But it was, again, it was about how do I get away from just being imitative? Mm. How do I get to a place where I'm actually being myself? Mm. And I have to say, David Thacker was incredibly helpful in that because he was a very, he was relentless in stripping away all of the yeah. stuff and but and and it was i by the time i actually came one of the great things about the rsc is you have a long period of rehearsal yeah. and by the time i actually came to previews i had worked so hard and so yeah. relentlessly on it that it had got to a point because i think really as an actor i can't really start working on something until i've been doing it for about probably about three months right. I've been performing it and then right. suddenly I go oh I'm actually I feel like I'm in a place where I'm really beginning to uh, I'm beginning to do something with this that I really feel is truthful it takes that long, that long feel like to get, get through get, to the next room well, just to know it so well uh-huh. and to strip down to get yeah. more and more yeah. you know down to a place where you don't have to be thinking about the line or right. what's coming up or you know it's being able to get into this I, I mean I think the moments of real joy for me in this job are these sort of and it sounds really wanky saying this but they're these zen moments where you forget everything yeah. and you're just in the moment yeah. and you suddenly are released and you go, I could stand on my fucking head and do this, and it would still, I'd still be in the moment. Yeah. I'm totally present, and I'm aware of everything that's going on. And it's this beautiful sweet spot where you just go, oh, finally, mm. I can be what I want to be, and I can do what I want to do. Mm. And this is, this is it. And then, of course, you know, you come off and it fucking goes somewhere. Some fucker tells you a joke or an alley or whatever, or farts or whatever, and it makes you laugh. And then you're, you're back in fucking like, you know, and that sublime moment is yeah, gone. Yeah. And I think for me, it was about doing that play towards the end of the run. I think I had moments where I suddenly had that, where I felt it for the first time mm. in my life. I've gone, fuck, I've done so much work. I can be free with this now. Mm. And it is mine. It's not somebody else's. Right. It's not fucking Larry Olivier or whoever right, right, else right. has played this part. It's mine. Also, I think the thing for me which was releasing was the fact, that I, the discovery that it's funny. Mm. That, that there's humour. As a young man playing it, there is a, the whole thing with his mother. Stuff with his mum. Yeah, absolutely. fantastically funny. And, and also she bullies a, him. There's a there's a sort of wonderful freedom in it because you know no matter how obnoxious you find his politics yeah. he's truthful yes. he's honest yes. that's it he can't lie yes. yeah. and that he says it as it is yeah. and what he totally believes there's a yeah. wonderful freedom in oh, it's so extraordinary isn't like it? we're he, so drawn to it as individuals absolutely. individuals versus the mob you may despise what they say but their deep deep conviction and sense of personal truth as he says it makes them irresistibly attractive totally beyond Shakespeare understood that beyond ideology 
the person who is utterly convinced of their own truth is immensely compelling to yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. As an actor. And heroic. And as a... Human being. Heroic, and no hero- matter heroic what you way. think of his, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's such an extreme, comp- weird paradox, isn't it? You can despise what they say, but there is a purity and a heroism to it. And it's not a popular thing to say. But when you see a great Coriolanus on stage, you feel that pull between those two things. How that purity but is the, extraordinary but, and but so the, uncommon. But also the thing is that when he has the, the moment in the marketplace where he goes, look, I'll tell you how, what I really feel. Yeah. There is truth to what he says. Yeah. No matter how much you dislike it, the mob is this mindless kind of zombie that's going around. And and the fact that you can tell, you give them this, and they'll, they'll say one thing, give them that, they'll say another thing. I mean, you know, and you're going to trust these people. You go, yeah, it is, it is obnoxious in many ways, but also there is a truth to it. Yeah. And that's what's great about that play, as well as a lot of other Shakespeare, it's complex. Sure. It's not just sort of cut and dry. Yeah, and, you know. complex. The other thing, finally, as a young person playing it, I suppose there is a thing of like the possibility of what he could have been if he had been allowed to develop, grow, yes. become yes. or be himself. There could have been a different yeah. outcome to this. Yeah. My take on him was that he was stunted by violence. I mean, he, he you know, he, he, it's explicit in the play. His mother says, to a cruel war, I mm. sent him. And he came back with whatever it was, sort of 16 knife wounds on him. Yeah. He was 16 years old. I, I did it for the second time in New York, around about the time of um, the centenary of World War One. Can that be right? Yeah, I think it was. 75 years, that's sort of World War II. Yeah. And it was all these people coming back, these young men who'd gone to this extraordinarily atrocious, we're back to Dolce Decorum Est, but they'd come back from this theatre of war and they like stopped clocks. Their lives had sort of stopped at that point mm. because they were so extremely traumatised. And I, the idea of you playing him as a young man feels completely appropriate to me because he is, however old you play him, and I played him when he was, I was probably 50. Two. Uh, I was only ever one but thrust you... parry or hyperventilated <laughs> soliloquy away from the emergency room at all times. Because that, that, that is the that is the that is the, 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 the is the standard uh, standard age generally. And I, I've got a question about that for you. But but he is a young man, even if it's just emotionally. You know, I I played there was a frozen teenager inside yeah. him, which is which, and I so being that much closer to that age in real life feels very very appropriate to me. Do you miss him? Do you wish you could play him again? Um, yeah, I, I kind of would be afraid of going back to it. I kind of want to leave that, park that right, there and right. just sort of like remember it. But I, I have nightmares where I am playing him again and that I don't fit my... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> breastplate. I don't fit my... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the girdle. I was like, having to, having to kind of squeeze myself into the like... spanks for and, Mr. And Stevens. Like going, oh God, I can't remember that line. Where is the script? And then not being able to find the script. But one of the things I was going to say about that is the great test of that part is that, and, and one of the great things structurally about it is that they show him as this killing machine athlete right at the get go. He has yeah. his first scene, right. then there's bang, we're right into Coriolis Cori- and, Cor- Cori- yeah. Cori- and, and him in this, and you, the big fight with Talisor Phidias. Mm. After which you then have to deliver like 
huge speech after speech. Yeah, it's a it's a really tough technical exercise, but it is one of those things where you go. I remember going, this fight better be good because I got to convince all of these people yeah. that I'm this terrifying. And then you don't have to do any work after that because right. you don't right. have to go strutting around. Right. I always right. remember going to see uh, a pr- production of it when I was younger, and it was it was one of those ones where there's sort of lots of leather going on. There was a lot of black. Alan leather. Howard, famous. Yeah, was it yeah. Alan Howard. It was actually, no, it was Charles Dance. Oh, yes, Charlie Dance. And there was a lot of leather going on, a lot of sort of like bare-chested stuff. And I was like, the thing is, I wouldn't be able to pull that off because I haven't got the physique. But what you want to do is you want to get all of that stuff. They've seen you. The audience have seen you. They've been thrilled by this spectacle of the fight. And then you don't have to work that anymore because they know, okay, well, you're the most dangerous person in the room. Exactly. So it allows you then to be able to be to get humor in there or whatever it is to get all those different colors. But it is technically it's (laughs) I remember it's a ball buster. I I was because we we were at the RSC together a year or two before that. And tell me if I've got this wrong, but reading about you, I was I was struck by the fact that you were still drinking in those days. Is that right? I wasn't when I was playing Coriolanus. Did you? Did you? Uh, I actually stop. stopped uh, during that whole thing. It was. It was also. It was to do with the fact that I just couldn't screw up. That I just right. was like, I'm not screwing this up. Right. But it was also in a sort of vain attempt to get my dad to stop drinking. Oh, I also yeah. look, if I can do this, you can do uh, that kind of thing, which didn't work. Right, right, and then right. he died fairly soon after I finished doing that, and yeah, I just yeah. went straight back on the booze for a while. I realized fairly rapid. I was like, oh, why did I do that? I functioned so much better off. Right. You know. Tell me about Hamlet. You did Hamlet, Michael Boyd. And again, was there a great sort of preparation to dodge, you know, the Hall of Famers that had come before you? How did you make, how did you go about making that your own? Well, I remember being adamant that I didn't want to set it in a psychiatric ward in a, right. you know, in a Czechoslovakian hospital. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I want to do it within the ambit of when it was so, so in the end we did it in sort of slightly sort of more Jacobean kind of, because doing my research about it was that, and, and really this is so difficult now to do but it is a religious play in that it is about a protestant seeing a catholic ghost right and his whole world being turned upside down and the thing is we live in a world where you know religion doesn't have the same significance language doesn't know the same thing because also one's soul is like you know it's this abstract kind of thing you know what is that but I was very much like this is this is very much about it is very much about that and it's important to couch it in those terms because it, an audience can then read into it what they want right. but it is about that and Michael and, was convinced by that well yeah I mean I don't think he was very happy he understood my argument I mean I was like look it is about that, and it's not. It doesn't mean that it's suddenly got to be a you know like we're proselytizing. Sure. It's not that at all. Sure, it's basically saying that's the sense. Somebody's world is completely turned around. His intellectual world, most importantly, is turned around, but his spiritual world as well is right. kind of you know. 
anyway, that was kind of where I wanted to do it, the way I wanted to do it. And I, I feel that that was how it was originally conceived by Shakespeare. I mean, I do, do, do believe that. I right. do believe he was, it, it was a very, actually a very political play, hmm. although you couldn't overtly talk about sure. religion, but that play is sure. actually very clearly. I mean, at the time, an audience that's seeing a, a ghost that says he's in purgatory. Yes, yes, yes. Is, is a in a Protestant world. Exactly. It's like shit. And particularly with Shakespeare's own history with the Catholic father and the absolutely uh, and he's dealing with all of that he's dealing with all of that stuff and and it's also it makes total sense why he's suddenly like so confused about i can't kill claudius when he's praying right which we take as weakness or just a sort of excuse but actually is a perfectly reasonable proper terrifying theological situation totally he'll he'll be saved absolutely if i kill him now and 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 also i will be damned right and if I kill myself, I will be down. I mean, you know, the thing is that, I mean, I totally understand. It. People go like, well, let's just take all of that out, make it, make it all about modern psychology. Right. But I'd seen that done and I was like, yeah. I'd like to do one where we, we actually do what's written and we allow people to interpret it, yeah. to relate to it in their own way. Yeah. Because it's, it's not like suddenly you look at Hamlet and go, God, he's some deluded religious nut. He's just normal for his time. He's somebody, because at the time, being a student very much was part of, you know, religion, the whole argument, yeah. the debate about religion was so much part of that. Yeah. Yes, um, it was an active philosophy. Life, and, yeah. Life or death. To be a student wasn't to be hanging and around eating li- pot noodle. People weren't living and dying because, of, I mean, people were being yeah. burned at the stake. Exactly. People were being killed left, right and centre. Yeah, it was more like being in a madrasa, wasn't it, in terms of the stakes of it, you know, studying well, totally. modern Islam. It was not a goof-off to go to university and, as I said, sit around watching Countdown. Did it work? I never saw it to my great shame. What, what are your memories of it? Well, Did it feel fulfilling? My memories of it were, were, were sort of mixed. I mean, I loved doing it. I, I did love, I mean, again, I loved playing that part and I loved having that experience of doing it mm-hmm. and did you get that flow state that you talked about yeah before? i mean i did and I, but the the struggle for me was was where the rsc was at which was at a very difficult phase right. because i i think what had happened was basically it become very difficult to get that essential middle layer of of actors you know those those yeah. those really great actors mm-hmm. who are the ones that you need to play the poloniuses mm-hmm. and you know all of those parts they weren't really interested in going and doing a year there at the time it was uh, adrian noble they'd left the barbican mm-hmm. it was it was suddenly in this bit of a no man's land sure. And so I had this very young cast that just didn't have the experience mm. of those actors. And, and so I ended up, and it was no, you know, no dishonor to them because they were, they were really fabulous and they were really trying, but they were just, you know, they just didn't have the experience. Right. And so I was having to work sort of like a crazy thing to keep it, you know, uh. to keep it up at this pitch because it just wasn't, and it was quite frustrating at times. You know, it wasn't the same as when we were there together. Right. Do you know what I mean? It, sure. it had just felt 
that I was suddenly performing with a bunch of 20 year olds and right. you needed people who had a bit more experience. Just know. lived some more. Yeah. yeah. This brings us to sex because as a famous theatrical sex pot, <laughs> I think it's important that we talk about this because I was so struck looking back at your career, all the, the column inches that have been dedicated to you and your sexual pulchritude on stage. I mean, there's a, there's a very well-respected academic called Gary Taylor. I don't know if you know this, but he wrote an article about the time that you did Hamlet, about how yours was a Hamlet for the M&M generation. <laughs> and it was constantly uh, referencing all the men and women in the theatre lobby who were desperate to sleep with you. I mean, he was just sort of... <laughs> Slathering, <laughs> slobbering, sort of quasi-academic oh I, take on it. I wish I'd read it at the yeah, time. Well, I, I uh, you should definitely get it out on uh, <laughs> one of those nights when you need a little bit of boying <laughs> exactly. up. Exactly. That was me one thing. That was me once upon a time. Yes. Yeah, it was extraordinary how we went on about the sex appeal of your of your Hamlet. And I wanted to ask you about chemistry, because you've had, you know. You've had to play a lot of roles. Hamlet is obviously one of them, where there needs to be mm. chemistry between two women on stage. He's got this extraordinary relationship with his mother. Mm. He's got this extraordinary relationship with his possible girlfriend. It's hard to establish, Distinct depending on, depending on yeah. the interpretation. You played Stanley Kowalski to Jessica Lange's Blanche Dubois in Streetcar Named Desire. You had that extraordinary production of Private Lives with Anna Chancellor. Is it something, when you go into a production... Is it terrifying to think, you know, so much of the future of this production depends on how I get on with this person and this mysterious alchemical combination of the two of us on stage? Mm. Does it feel like a burden, a pressure to feel like you have to have a particular type of relationship with a leading lady? That's such a good question. Do you know, it's it's really funny because I, I think that the most important relationship that you have with whoever you're on stage with is in the rehearsal room. Right. And the reason I love what I do is that I get to piss around and have a huge amount of fun with people. Right. And that is the, my main uh -huh. joy, uh -huh. especially now, is that I get what to you, hang what do you mean around. especially now? Well, I think it's sort of like now... What I really love is just having the fun, the play, right? playing with people. That feels more important to you at this time of your life? It's sort of like it's, it's the more important part of the process in, in terms of what happens in the rehearsal room. When you get into the actual theatre, it becomes a bit more lonely, I think, because, mm. I mean, I can affect what the other person is doing in terms of how much attention I'm giving them or whether I'm fixating on myself and not giving them anything. Right. But but the thing is, I can really affect what I'm doing in this moment. And there's something in my head, rather like my mum all those years ago saying, oh God, there's something I'm not quite getting right here, right. is that thing of sort of like trying to inch a bit closer to something that's where you go, actually, I believe myself. I now believe myself. I feel like I'm in a territory now where if I was watching this, I'd be like, yeah, I buy it. I buy that. 
And so that pursuit I find quite lonely because the only measure of that is you. Right. Whereas when you're in the rehearsal room, it's like, we're all in this and we're all going to get this fucker on and we're all going to have a great time. And I suppose the thing what I'm saying is where I'm creative in a rehearsal room is when I'm having fun. If I'm like... Oh, it's all so serious, and I've got to really dredge this up from some, you know, place. And I, um, this is also, I can't work if I am like in hysterics one moment, like just having fun, and then going right. Let's get our shit together and do this scene. And then I go into the scene. I'm open. Right. I'm available. Right. Totally creatively, yeah. I'm open. I haven't closed myself down to what some narrow bandwidth where I feel like I have to be. I'm playful. I'm available. That can go either way. You can be crying or you could be laughing hysterically, but you're, you're open. And it's the same in filming. Whenever I'm filming, I love pissing around and having fun and enjoying the company. Actors are the best company. Yes. They just sure. are. Yes. It's true. And it's I, really true. They just are. Yeah. You just have the best time. <laughs> yes. And, and like, they're just such fun. And I think if you can hit that, then you've got the chemistry. Right. And then, and then as I say, once you're on stage, it's the lonely thing of going, I need to get to this point where I can actually, you know, I, I know that I'm, Incredible, right? Somehow, do you ever feel like it's your job to manage that chemistry, to create that atmosphere? Have you had to do that with scene partners when it has to be this, for want of a better word, heat between you? For example, Jessica Lang. I have no idea how that production went. We have never talked about it. But was that, you know, Blanche and Stanley, iconic stage duo? Was that something you needed to work out the relationship or was that, did that come quite naturally? Well, the thing is, that's a really interesting relationship. And, and the thing is, I wish that I, I actually, that's one of the parts where I look back on that and I sort of go burst out in a sweat of sort of embarrassment because I sort of feel like I wasn't able to play that part when I oh. played it. And, and I think it's a brilliant piece. And I, I think that that one was like, you're definitely carrying a huge load behind you. You, you're walking on stage with friggin' Marlon Brando's hefty bulk <laughs> <laughs> attached to your, you know, sweaty ghost. That production, Jessica Lang had done it with Alec Baldwin in That's New York right. earlier, right? That's and when right. we did it in, in London, he, you took over from Alec Baldwin. Yeah, she, she didn't. I mean, she felt that she hadn't got it right. She didn't like Baldwin. Right. I mean, the interesting thing about Jessica was, which I, I didn't really agree with when we were playing it, was she played the tragedy from the moment she walked on the uh. stage. And um, I remember actually Michael Grandage giving a brilliant note once saying, you don't know this day is going to work out the way it does. And you're doing everything you can to fight against that. Who wants to think they're in a tragedy? Mm. You want to fight against that. The more you fight against it, the more the audience is going to be with you. And, and the thing was that I felt that Jessica was playing it from that, like, and she hated anything because part of the chemistry between them is, yeah, they hate one another. They really don't like one another. Toby's taking off his I'm shirt. Just taking He's off getting my, into yes, exactly. Stanley. Stanley Kowalski. But they, mode. They, but they really don't like one another, which doesn't mean that they don't find each other sexually attractive. Right. They just really don't like one another. Right. And there's a lot of comedy in the fact that they're always taking the piss out of one another. Right. And there's, it's very funny, but she didn't like anybody laughing at her. 
She didn't like anybody laughing at Blanche Dubois. So she would do... We had this incredible sort of skirmishes every night where she would try and kill my laughs, you know, by by coming in, you know, like on it. And then I would have to change the timing. So we were doing this kind of... This comedy tango. Doing this little kind of little jigs every night. Some nights I'd win, some nights she'd win. But that, I think, helped in a weird way because... Because it it comes from this frustration. And she would get very angry. She was a sweetheart off stage. And we actually got on really, really well. But on stage, she was quite uh, feisty. Got it. But uh, So that chemistry sort of, in a weird way, looked after itself. Yeah. But I think it is one of those things where you can't manufacture it. And in a way, I was just like, look, it doesn't matter whether this leading lady wants to sleep with me or whether I want to sleep with her. What it is, is that you can... When you're on stage, the moment you hit the stage, those characters want that. That's what you need to have. And I think, obviously, it does affect performances if you're not getting on with somebody in a rehearsal room. That's that's the main thing. I think think if if you're not getting on well, that can really kill things. Yeah, interesting. And I've never really had that myself. That's why I want to have fun in a rehearsal room and I want to kind of break down anything that's, that, that's there right. so that you just end up having fun. Right. You've worked with Jonathan Kent four or five yeah. times? Yeah. Multiply. I mean, you've worked with wonderful directors. You just mentioned Michael Grandage, Peter Hall yeah. you worked with early on in your career. Yeah, he's very loyal. Uh, Michael Boyd, Anna Mackman. You know, but Jonathan has been your regular collaborator. Is there a particular language between you does he encourage the pissing about that gives you this yeah i mean he's 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 fun in a rehearsal room and i i think it's just a certain element of trust like i trust you to do this and i I think that trust thing is is quite important especially when you get on you just don't want to be wasting time forging that trust when when you have that shorthand already yeah we just enjoy working with it and we're able to do that we're great friends, but the moment we're in a rehearsal room, I let him get on with what he's doing and right. he lets me get right. on with what I'm doing and he can note me as an, my director and not as my friend. Right. And we sort of manage to juggle those two things, which I think sometimes can be quite tricky. Uh, what do you need from him when you get in a rehearsal room? What do you need from Jonathan? What I love about him is that he'll try and impose what he thinks is his idea of a scene you know like why don't you come through the door and then you know she'll be on the bed there and then you know maybe meet up here and you know and you go right 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 and then you get into it and then you go that's not gonna work and rather than him be sort of like prideful yes well, why don't you try and make it work? You know, sort of <laughs> it will You'll work. You'll go, well, okay, well, well, what do you think? And then right. that's, again, why I love the rehearsal room is because you sort of get the feeling of how a scene works, the, the mechanics of it. So we, we make it function as the scene, but then we need to hide it. We can actually elevate it to something else by doing something here. And then, you know, you can try that for a bit and go, actually, that's a bit wanky. Let's get, discard that. And then we'll try. It's, it's to try and find out where it really is located. Right. So you go through these different phases. And if you're with somebody who's doggedly trying to get one, you can't go through all of that. Right, 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 right. right. And can't go through that process of fumbling around until you actually go, ah, that well, now we're in the right ballpark here. And I trust his taste. 
we have that sort of dialogue where we can kind of work that way which some people don't like you know some people want no I want somebody to tell me right. kind of what's going on boundaries you know you speak so brilliantly about this stuff you you're so wonderfully thoughtful about acting your own acting the sort of transformations that you've gone through as you've acquired more and more experience about this stuff i know you directed a short movie mm. do you ever have any desire to direct on stage I would love to. Would you? I, w- I would really love to. I would love to. And I've sort of tried to make sort of stabs at maybe I could, you know, and, and but it's hard when, you know, I think we're both at the same sort of phase where you've got kids that are in school and yeah, you've got yeah. mortgages to pay and you've right. got to keep the, the day job going. You know, that is something that I think one needs to take time out to kind of go, yeah. I'm going to direct this. And also what's important is I don't really want to direct myself. I I don't want to be in something that I'm also directing. I think that's sort of, I want to direct something. Do do you have specific things in your mind? Well, I've had various ideas of of doing things, but I mean, I, I think, you know, I'd have to kind of, if I actually wanted to do something, it, it requires like, what am I willing to spend this amount of time sure. doing? And what is actually required? Right. Like at the moment, I feel we really need some great comedies because we're going through, it's a tough time at the moment. Right. There's a lot of anxiety. Sure. There's a lot of kind of, you know, uncertainty. These are tough times. And I, I, I would love to work on a comedy. I would love to do a comedy mm. in, in, in the theatre. I would like, because I just think it's such fun. But also we need it. We need right. that kind of thing right. at the moment. You know, I don't know. I'd be really happy as long as it's a decent play. I mean, I just want to work with actors because I yeah. just love working in a room with actors and getting stuff together and I getting... be a wonderful director, particularly a wonderful director of comedy. I could probably overstate this about the sort of bloodline, your inheritance, your, 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 your sense of a comedy tradition particularly that goes back much further than, than your own life and career, but also encapsulates that too. I bet you'd be brilliant at sort of that wonderful combination that you need in comedy of really understanding how the thing works, like a watch, you yes, know, really yeah. understanding how timings work and how it is as a construction. But also that freedom, that that instinct. Those, I bet you'd be wonderful at bringing that out in actors. Oh, you should do it. You should. Well, I, know. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, I will at some point. I also think it's a great, it's a really fun thing to do. Directing, it's a, it's a great, great thing to do. What bothers you about the theatre? What's your biggest peeve about it? Is there anything you know? You've done it a lifetime spent in rehearsal rooms and on stage and. Is there ever anything about it that's a sort of stone in your shoe? Uh, I, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, it's it's more mostly to do with kind of uh, the pay. Oh, the pay! <laughs> I'm just I'm being silly. Yes, the pay is. I mean, yeah. wouldn't it be wonderful? Do you remember there was a Martin Amis short story where he inverted the lives of screenwriters and the lives of poets, <laughs> and so poets would be flown on Concord. You know, he imagined the two things were completely swapped over. Poets would be flown on Concord to read their new villanelle, <laughs> sort of, and get an enormous fee at the end of it. And screenwriters were meeting in basements, you know, to sort of furtively push around their their latest opus. <laughs> and I often think the same way about, you know, theatre actors and movie actors. If for a minute cultures 
rewards were swapped. You know, I'd never be out of the <laughs> theatre if you could make a living at it. I suppose the thing for me that sort of irritates me is that there is a view of what's commercial and what's not commercial. And there is such a disparity between these sort of theatrical engines like, you know, the National and the West End. You know, right. you have these things that are like supposedly commercial plays. Mm. A lot of which just die the death because they're, they're looking in it the wrong way. You know, they're looking through the telescope in the wrong way. They're going, we're going to put on a commercial play. Well, you can't really do that because we don't really know what's going to hit with an audience right. as long as it's a good product. I mean, you know, it's it's thing is, it could be a, completely not what somebody's thinking of as a commercial play, but it can do incredibly well because you've just got a great production with great actors and, you know, a really good team. That's the most important thing. Yeah, and it is, you know, it is slightly depressing that one has to kind of work theatre into one's career Bill when you can. Yeah, exactly. You just did a production or just do it. When did you do The, the Forest? Oh, I did it the beginning of uh, the uh, beginning of last year. Yeah, right. So pretty recently. Yeah, with uh, Florian Zeller, the great yeah, yeah. writer of uh, you know the father and Christopher Hampton, of course, brilliant playwright in his own right. But he's Florian Zeller's English adapter translator, and another one with Jonathan Kent. You did it at Hampton. Yes. Now th- that sounds like it was an interesting example I, I wish I'd seen it but an interesting example of a play that is new cerebral mm-hmm. un-English extremely challenging and formally uh, uh, complicated yes you know, the, 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 it's playing with time and place and yeah. and the imagination and and I know that some people absolutely loved it but I know also the reception to it was 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 mixed was that Given that that's such a full meal of theatrical mm. possibilities there, did its reception feel disillusioning to you? Did it make you want to think about a different tradition of theatre outside this little English one that you've, yeah. that you've, that you've described, which is subsidised theatre and commercial theatre? Interestingly, it felt more akin to what I want to be doing. Right from the moment I read it, I was like, this is a really intriguing and brilliant piece of writing. And it and it really did strike me as a very European play. Right. Um, it didn't strike me as as a British play at all. Um, it felt very very European. And um, when we were doing it, I just found it endlessly fascinating. It was like this kind of really elaborate Rubik's cube. And what's really interesting is that I don't think Zeller is particularly, I don't see, think he would see himself as an intellectual writer. Right. I think he's an incredibly instinctive writer huh. who happens to write in a way that actually ends up being very intellectual. It's very, very, it's not clever It's because it's incredibly truthful, right. but it's very searching. Yeah. It's relentless in the way that it just probes things. And this play in particular is probing something. It's like every iteration of this, there's three iterations of a similar kind of, but everyone is probing deeper into this guy's psyche, to the male psyche, you know, the way that we can compartmentalize our lives and how we can... You, we can live with things in tandem. Like I can, at one thing, be morally opposed to this while right. at the same time doing exactly that. Right. <laughs> you know, 
And I, I just, I found it was such an interesting experience doing it. It was such an experience, an interesting experience doing it in front of audiences because right. it was one of those things. I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not one for punishing one's audience, but I do like making them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And it was one of those ones where people, there were a lot of people who were they feeling were really yeah. quite uncomfortable. Oh, that's great. It. it plums things that the way he, and again, why I think it's so, he's so instinctive is he plums things that are very, very, like there was one bit in it where he's recounting a dream that he's had. And we all know what it's like to dream and how things that when you in the cold light of day, when you explain them, seem sort of anodyne in these dreams. They're terrifying. Of course. They're completely psychologically so, real. Yes. So terrifying. And he's he's telling these dreams and, and you know, they're very affecting. And an audience immediately chimes into that because yes. we all dreams are a common language. Yes, that we've yes. all been in these dreams to one degree or another. And they're very revealing of the inner life. So anyway, I, I loved it. And I was confused at the end of it. But it's, it's one of those things where you go, you go, look, I know that, that was a, it was a really good play. Yeah. It was a really interesting play. Yeah. And the fact that there are a lot of people that go, they, they just sort of poo-poo it. Like, go, oh, it's yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of French bourgeois, you know. Right. You go like, we have to be doing these sort of plays that are, we feel are somehow earnest. We can all come out and pat ourselves on the back and go, yes, we've done something that's really meaningful, you know, and that, it, that it's about issues. Mm. But I don't believe any of that crap. I, I think those plays are generally empty because they are, they go, they come and they go. Right. It's, oh, it's an issue play. Well, it's gone because right. we've moved on. Plays that are really about the human condition, those stay around. Yes. And they're really important pieces yes. because they're telling us something that's really honest. No, I think you're completely right. I think, it's, I think the theatre has always had a function, of course, where it's dealing with stuff ripped from the headlines, and perhaps it is a, ephemeral. I think, there's a, I think there's a role for it. It doesn't necessarily make it great art. Well, for I example, think, I think ones- a lot of David Hare's play, who we were talking about, about earlier, um, David Hare, very fine playwright, but you wouldn't be doing them now, right. a lot of those plays, because they were very much of their time. Right. Uh, and then they go. We move on. This is, of course, the central argument of another play that you did, The Real Thing, Tom Stockwell's mm. The Real Thing, which is all about what is the real thing in art, what yeah. travels. He has that famous speech with the cricket bat where he says, you know, this is a well-made piece of art, the metaphor of the cricket bat. If you hit this, if you hit a ball with this thing, it will travel 60 yards in two seconds and make a sound like a trout taking a fly or a bottle yeah. top coming off the top of a bottle of stout. And that is communication. That's artistic communication. It travels. It moves. He talks about the Brodie's play, right? His, his girlfriend's who's sort of falling in love with this convict who's written yeah. this thing, yeah. which he said, if you were to hit the ball with this thing, the shudder would go up both your arms <laughs> and it would travel about, dribble about three feet. Yeah, yeah. And you'd have pain in your forearms. <laughs> For the next, <laughs> for the next day, hey, listen. I'm, I'm not going to take any of your time more, Tobes, because you've been so already been so so generous. But what do you still? It's interesting talking about the forest and about you, you being drawn to things that are a bit more uncomfortable for you, for scary, for an audience. What do you still want from the theatre? I think it's 
look again, I mean, this is where one, one sort of is so self-aware of becoming sort of pompous. That's but what, I do, that's what, what I do really love about the theatre, I, lo- I like when I see it and when I'm performing in it, is when something is being honest and truthful about the human condition. That is really what, and it can be hilariously funny and it can be deeply, deeply moving. But you know when it's, when, when you're watching the real thing, the real thing. Mm. When you're watching the real thing, you know it. And when you're in the real thing, you know it. Yeah. That's what I love about theater is its way of really skewering what it is to be a human being at any given moment and, and the, the warts and all kind of nature of it. And that's what I like seeing it. And that's why I feel that it was a religious experience for the Greeks to sit there and watch this stuff. Mm. And I still think it is a sort of religious experience when a communal group of people perform something for another communal group of people and that they are held, totally held and moved. And, you know, there's that palpable kind of energy that's communicated and it's it is a religious experience. It's it's and it's wonderful when you see it. It's just like oh, you know, um, and that's what I want from theatre. You know, <laughs> it doesn't sound like much to ask. No, <laughs> thanks, mate. Thank that you. Was Thank beautiful you. Useful to hear you say that. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, there is Toby Stevens, ladies and gentlemen. What a fun chat. What a lovely time we had talking to each other. And also, (laughs) does he have the most enjoyable wheezy laughter of any guest I've had on so far? We've had some good, uh, we've had some good laughers. But the, the Toby Stevens wheeze, the Toby wheezens, what, I'm not going to continue with that. Very enjoyable, richly enjoyable. Thank you so much, Toby, for taking the time to talk to me. Stage Door Johnny is an off-script production. Thanks, Louise Berry, for your exec producing. Thank you to Acast for your podcast support. And thank you to Ben Backhouse. You're an amazing producer. If I haven't told you that often enough, I should. You are. Thank you to the musicians, Iggy Cake, for writing and playing the theme tune. Thank you to Phoebe Cake for singing it. Thank you to Iggy Cake for being this week's trainee stage manager. Well, the regular stage manager is off gallivanting around. Um, thank you, Iggy, manfully 
man fully filled in. And my guest next week is um, the wonderful stage actress, TV actress, movie actress, Martha Plimpton. Martha is a creature of the theatre like you wouldn't believe. We worked together on a production of Cymbeline. Shakespeare's very rarely performed late, late play in which she played Imogen and I played Iacomo, committing horrors in her bedchamber and secreting myself in a trunk at Lincoln Center in New York in, oh, I don't know. Oh, my daughter had just been born. She's now 13. So yeah, you did the math. D- uh, 2010. Come on. I can, even I can do that math. Please join me for my chat with Martha. It's, it's terrific to talk to her about her amazing career on the stage. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here it is, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Sees plays sad and funny. That's stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. He knows that there's no money. Being stage, stage door.